0: Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a special guest, Toraj Parang, who has not only founded and sold three venture-backed startups, but he's also led eight transformational acquisitions as a corporate development buyer at Godet. Toraj has been a Silicon Valley M&A attorney, a venture investor, an entrepreneurial mentor, and today is the president of Serve Robotics, which provides delivery to people in public spaces using zero emissions autonomous robots. In our conversation, Toraj and I discuss why selling a business is so difficult and how planning and preparation can greatly improve your chances of real transactional success. In fact, Toraj is such an expert on exit preparation that he wrote a best-selling book about the topic called Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame, in which he shares the lessons he's learned over the last 25 years from every side of the M&A table. I love this book so much that I'm buying 25 copies to give away to our listeners who help us promote the Cashing Out podcast. So please follow ExitWise on LinkedIn to learn more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Toraj Parang. Toraj, thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. You're one of the few M and A professionals who's built and sold companies, advised founders on M and A transactions, and helped buyers acquire companies really properly and, and integrate those companies effectively as part of a growth strategy. And you know, reading your book uh, on how to really prepare for an exit for me it was fantastic. I know your insights are going to be really well received. Um, There'll be gold for our founders. Um, but also, I got I got so fired up when you agreed to do this chat that I had no problem bumping Mark Cuban from this time slot. So thank you for being here. <laughs>
1: well, sorry, apologies to Mark. Well, g- good to speak with you again, Todd. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm delighted to be here, and really looking forward to this chat.
0: That's great. Um, like I said, you've sat really at every seat of the M and table. Right. And then you went on to write this book, which I definitely want to talk about. But maybe you could start by taking us back. You're in Silicon Valley, you're a corporate attorney, and then you make this jump to entrepreneurship. Maybe you could take us through that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, sitting on every side of MA table was definitely not something I planned. (laughs) Uh, It it happened by accident, Uh, but it's fun that it did. And I'm grateful for all that experience, the good and the bad. Uh, So yes, uh, taking you back to when I started actually practicing in Silicon Valley. Um, So I was a Stanford undergrad in the 90s. I studied philosophy and economics. And of course, the natural path after that combination is law school. I was unemployable otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, went to Yale Law, Uh, loved the study of law and had sort of a very different impression of what the practice of law entailed. So I loved entrepreneurs and innovation and technology. And I knew always that I wanted to be around uh, that community. And so I felt that as a lawyer, I could really be helpful to entrepreneurs and uh, came and practiced law, corporate law, representing entrepreneurs from formation all the way to their IPO and M&A events. And uh, I quickly learned that the entrepreneurs were having a lot more fun than I did. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt that um, I would rather be a lot closer to the deal, to structuring the deal than documenting a deal, which is important work, uh, which is what lawyers do and they do it very well, uh, but it wasn't where my heart was. So I uh, networked my way to a business role, which was uh, an associate at a venture capital firm in Palo Alto. It was just opening office with a European fund coming to Palo Alto. I happened to hit a couple of uh, check boxes for them. I spoke German; they were German, um, and so uh, that was my first business job, early two thousands. In fact, as soon as I joined, the market crashed. Hopefully, correlation not causation, and I uh, learned a lot. Uh, so, four years as a VC, kind of got my MBA on the job, and mm-hmm. and then at some point, I felt. Um, brave enough to uh, actually try my hand at entrepreneurship. And that's when I made the jump over into being a founder and started my first startup in 2005, which was a telecommunication startup. It was kind of like, you may think of it as a precursor to WhatsApp and Telegram in an era where we didn't have smartphones, Uh, we didn't have iPhones with apps on them. So these were the dumb feature phones, but we wanted to connect them with your social networks. And because we kind of saw these trends that people love to talk and text on their phones. People also love to spend time on social media. Back then was Friendster, Myspace, but -hmm. these two were disjointed. So our, our aha moment was, hey, what if we bridge the two? You know, that startup had really great early successes. Uh, and ever since I've been an entrepreneur, you know, the, uh, been in the business world.
0: Yep. And now that was Jackster, right? That was That's Jackster. The one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that was it. That's an interesting story because you had some competitors around you. Remember, like, was it Grand Central got bought by Google? There are a few others, yes. right? Yes. Yeah.
1: In fact, you know, the zeitgeist <laughs> was that like four or five companies started in the same year. Around the same idea, which was voice over IP kind of transporting voice um, and text messages over the IP network um, that was attached to the cellular network. So kind of bypassing a little bit the toll charges, you may remember that making a long distance call. Uh, and long distance. I am not talking about international within the US. A long distance call could, could uh, uh, empty your bank account, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know students couldn't call back home, college students because yep. uh, of heavy, heavy toll charges. Also, um, texting was really expensive. You would pay per message, uh, yep. which, which is insane in today's world. So we, w- we want to kind of uh, address that problem, make calling and texting as close to free as possible. That was like our grand vision um and so yeah grand central jaja jangle uh ribbit we all started in 2005 funny enough uh the outcome of all those other players was radically different from ours <laughs> um and sadly for us uh we didn't have a great outcome so we all hit the 2008 2009 recession um and um which was very similar to today's uh recession right so vc stopped investing market crashed uh all doom and gloom you know sequoia issued that powerpoint presentation uh, kind of rip good times was the title wow. of that one right and and so um we found ourselves in a situation where we were running out of cash fast mm-hmm. and we uh hadn't really cracked the code on monetization. We were growing, growing, growing. We were a viral product. We raised a lot of venture money and you know, m- grabbing market share and growth was our predominant focus. So we didn't spend much time on kind of trying to convert users into paid users, even though they were very active users, they weren't paid users. And active users meant that we were we had costs that were virally growing, too, because we still had to had infrastructure costs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we went from, like let's say, zero to one million users in the first month we launched the product. Right. We went to 10 million in the first year. It was a pretty viral thing. Back then, these were real numbers. And so we had our pick of investors and, uh, you know, we had our dream list of investors actually uh, backing us, which was fantastic. But they all had big ambitions in terms of growth and market share. What uh, happened was that really we were caught by surprise as many startups were backed in as they were here the last year. So we kind of had to figure out what to do. Now, one critical decision we had made, which we came to regret, <laughs> was that we didn't really pursue any strategic partnerships, distribution partners, or even court potential acquirers, because we thought that we had it made, right? We, we thought that we're growing, we're going to be a unicorn, uh, although the term probably didn't apply, uh, wasn't around back then, we, were, we thought it would be a billion-dollar-plus company to an IPO. So <clears throat> we were drinking our own Kool-Aid, and so we sort of just put the blinders on and focused on executing. Didn't want to distract ourselves with biz dev or external conversations. Well, lo and behold, when we needed to find a way to exit, which was in 2009 really hard to do, we didn't have anyone around the table and we had to kind of create those relationships called. We had very short runway. We thought we had a year. And then when we went back to our board, we had raised 5 million in venture debt, The board said, no, 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 you can't touch that venture debt. So that cut our runway by half. Uh, We had like six months to figure out what to do. And our investors were saying, sorry, we are not investing anymore um, in companies that aren't on the path to profitability. And we couldn't show that. So we tried to tweak our funnels, come up with new products. You know, it was all hands on deck, but there's just not enough time. So then we scrambled to reach out to acquirers, and um, they were all busy licking their own wounds, right? Sure. And they weren't in the mood to start new relationships. So what happened, we were kind of like, we had to do a fire sale, and we had one uh, interested party. They named the price, which was pretty much close to zero. No one really made anything from that exit, but we did transfer our IP and some of our users to a new platform um that was uh, that was a hard lesson learned right <laughs> and and what made it maybe perhaps pour salt on the wound was that all those names that we just mentioned all the other players that started with us they mm-hmm. had amazing exits as you said uh, grand yeah. central became google voice yeah. ribbit sold to uh, british telecom for uh, close to $100 million, um, and this was before they had even launched publicly. JoJo sold to uh, uh, Telefonica for $200 million. And I think compared to all those players, we had better technology, much more solid backing, um, had raised more money. Um, uh, You know, uh, maybe I'm I'm biased. We had a better team. So anyway, uh,
0: but... Uh, you know, we made one critical strategic error. It's so it's really interesting. That story to me, because it very much resonates some of the things that you've said where what founders are going through right now is very similar to what happened in 2008. And just like you, we were in the middle of selling a business that I had started in August of 2008. Investment committee for the buyer pulls out on day of signing. Like literally minutes before signing, the board all looks at each other and says, and Kleiner Perkins was on the board at the time and said, guys, hold all your cash. Do not buy anything. And it ended our deal on signing day. And so, um, you know, very familiar with that. And, and today, the attitude that is going around with venture is not kind of funding uh, current portfolio companies unless they're, you know, big winners. M&A isn't getting done unless you're profitable. A lot of very similar things are happening. And and one thing that I loved about your book is you describe that situation really well, and you refer to strategic partnerships and how that is an important part of M&A. And I learned the exact same thing, Toraj. The next time I went out, I was all about creating revenue through strategic partnerships. And so you're getting to know these other people that can be your acquirers someday. And so having those avenues is incredibly valuable as you're thinking through what an exit could be. So you have an amazing career with webs next and then...
1: Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, right after uh, that uh, a learning experience, I took six months to just reflect, to uh, to just uh, try to understand what, what just happened. And mm-hmm. um, I did come to the realization that not really... Courting uh, those potential acquirers, not creating those strategic partnerships is what did us in. And so I, I kind of took that thesis and uh, joined another startup uh, called webs.com, mm-hmm. which was um, really at the stage where Jaxer was, but they had figured out how to get to cash flow breakeven. They mm-hmm. had raised a modest amount of money, about $10 million or so. Um, not astronomic valuations either. That's because they were uh, based out of East Coast. They were in Silver Spring, Maryland, Mm -hmm. and they hadn't really done any strategic partnerships, mostly because they were under the radar for Silicon Valley. No one really had heard of them, even though they were one of the biggest, if not the biggest website creation platforms. There were 30 million websites that were created on webs.com. They had a freemium model, so, But, but uh, enough of them converted to paid um, that got them to cash flow break-even, and uh, they needed to break out. They needed to figure out, do we go raise more money? Do we go uh, sell ourselves? If so, to whom? So I joined as head of strategy and corp dev. And um, in the first six months, I kind of orchestrated an off-site, took the management team out, and uh, we spent the weekend at Chesapeake Bay and kind of really brainstormed on what would success really look like for this company Mm -hmm. Um, and who would be our dream acquirers? Why would we consider them to be attractive to us and why would we be attractive to them? So we kind of went through that mental exercise, kind of like looked at the end goal. And then came back and said, "Okay, what do we need to put in place to get there?" And so, kind of created this two-year roadmap as to what we should be, how we should reposition ourselves. And one of the insights that came into that meeting was that among all of the cohorts of users, these thirty million websites created, the ones that converted the most was a very specific cohort—the ones that complained the least, converted the best. you know, okay. stayed the longest, um, and those were the small businesses. Okay. So that was our aha moment. Um, and we said, look, we need to position ourselves as an SMB platform rather than a generic website creation tool. And guess what? A lot of those dream acquirers, they are doubling down on their SMB digital mm-hmm. strategy. So kind of like those two came together very nicely. And so we spent the next two years building relationships with those and telling them, hey, look, we are getting into the SMB space. In fact, these are the metrics we are seeing from our SMB cohorts. What are you guys seeing? So kind of build those, that relationship, yeah. uh, shared learnings, and, and then sort of approach them with, hey, maybe there's a way we can partner together. So kind of dangle those ideas. Um, none of them really materialized into partnership, but what it did was build trust, build familiarity over these two years with them, that yeah. when we were about to raise our next round, we, we told them and they started, uh, you know, becoming active and started actively, uh, kind of putting bids together for us. Um, you know, uh, we had to do acquisitions ourselves because to get within that short time frame to come, to have those product that SMBs would find attractive, like a CRM tool or social marketing tools, we had to actually acquire companies ourselves. We did that. Those were small acquisitions, but extremely meaningful. And then some of the uh, things we did through strategic partnerships, for instance, our website needed to be mobile compatible. There was a great company out there called Duda. We partnered with them and they basically enabled the um, mobile compatibility of the websites created on the platform. Anyhow, to make a long story short, we had to do a lot of work, uh, but it was well worth it. Because when, when we got the, those multiple interested parties, public and private, that kind of raised our price pretty significantly. We had leverage. And the best leverage, of course, is the fact that we didn't have to sell. So we told them yeah. hey, look, if you want us to sell, you have to make an offer we can't refuse. You have to stop us in our tracks. And, and so um, one party did that, uh, which was Vistaprint. So we sold for about $120 million to Vistaprint, which was significant outcome for everyone involved. Uh, it was more than 10x our revenues, um, forward revenues. And so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great deal. And uh, what a radically different outcome compared to what we went through with Jaxter, right? Just because of that, uh, both strategic offsite and then the follow through.
0: Yeah. What's interesting is it's one thing to say it, right? But you really walk through the steps of, for a person who may not necessarily be a natural uh, networker, how to reach out and start creating those partnerships. And we had a really nice exit recently with a software company that had really gone out and not only just created customers, but really created true partners where they did what you were saying, where they learned something about their software that might be nuanced. And they started kind of putting that education out to their customers. And what you saw is that just trust was starting to be developed. And then they evaluated the founder a little differently and the product a little bit differently. And then all of a sudden, one of them said, you know what? This could really excel under our umbrella. And when that happened, well, then the other three, well, we don't wanna lose it. We like that product too. And it just forced an eventual bidding war for a company that wasn't for sale just by developing really great kind of business development strategic relationships and we were fortunate enough to be able to advise on that and watch the purchase price go, just go up 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 and up so you you go on and what, what's exciting for me as we talked about at the beginning you know both sides are all sides of the m a table but now you end up as running kind of corporate development for godaddy buying companies being on the other side of the table with a founder and really understanding what is it that we're looking for right then so there might be some learnings there i'm sure there are some learnings there what do founders need to do when they get in front of corporate development groups to be really attractive right to be acquired
1: exactly I, and you know i joined godaddy uh for a number of reasons. Uh, one was the mission, uh, which was very small business centric. Uh, the mission it was, and uh, it's now modified a little bit, but at the time it was to tilt the global economy towards small business. It really resonated with me. You know, I had been in this small business world, uh, especially with webs uh, for quite some time. And I did App Council after that, which was a marketplace for legal services for small businesses. So I really have a passion for small business. My parents were small business owners. I have owned small businesses, so so love small business. And then I also really liked the team at GoDaddy, the culture. And uh, it was a pre-IPO company. I'd never been at a public company, so I felt that it was um, a chance to see how uh, scaled, mature companies behave mm-hmm. and how do they go about acquiring companies. So it was really uh, with a desire to learn. Uh, as much as I can, so I joined Godaddy in the Corp Dev team, uh, and and led a number of uh, initiatives for various business units. Um, the Corp Dev team at Godaddy was an interesting beast. We uh, we combined uh, BizDev and Corp Devs because we okay. saw that BizDev to be a, a, a front a, a kind of funnel for Corp Dev. A lot of companies have them as separate functions of doesn't really make sense to me (laughs) i feel like they should they should work hand in hand Mm -hmm. and so i actually worked on a number of strategic partnerships with some startups that we ended up acquiring. so Mm -hmm. it it made sense to have that continuity the corp dev uh, typically what they do is they kind of help business unit owners uh, develop a build by partner case so they have to kind of see okay what is it that we want to accomplish and is the best way to accomplish this through buying someone acquiring someone is it best to build it in-house or perhaps do a strategic partnerships there are pros and cons to each of these approaches and so that's what corp dev does it for some of your listeners are kind of wondering what's the role of corp dev that's what they mm-hmm. do They're not the ultimate decision makers. That's a mistake that um, many entrepreneurs, including myself, when I was on the other side, uh, we kind of assume that corp dev is like the authority. They are not. Um, Mm -hmm. They are the facilitators. Uh, They they definitely play an important role. But the ultimate decision makers are in the business units, uh, the operating units, that have to take uh, the acquired entity and deliver on the promise of the acquisition. Um, And so um, it was really interesting to see how that's the role we play. I I kind of uh, would call myself uh, a a Cupid because I felt that the best role I could play was to kind of put a promising startup and our leaders in the same room, let them talk, kind of dim Mm -hmm. the lights a little bit and see if sparks fly,
0: right? That's great. I I love the point of corporate development, right? They're not really the decision makers, right? They're going to facilitate a transaction. And you know what I encourage a lot of founders with is these strategic partnerships. When the head of a particular product or a business unit, as you're, you're saying in business development, when they really latch on to something that you offer and they're integrating it and they're really understanding it, if they're the ones that drive the interest, the acquisition interest into the corp dev group, right? You're creating really advocates for an M&A transaction. And and that's where I see the best ones really start at the product level. Like, wow, this is really making us more efficient. We can scale, we could really use this uh, product in a lot of different ways. And then corp dev, you know, is making the call, but really driven by product or as you said, business development. So yeah, th- I think that's a, a great educational point.
1: Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things actually, uh, just uh, if I may piggyback on that, one of the things I really um, preach in in the book Exit Path, which is based on my learnings in the past twenty plus years in Silicon Valley, is that acquisitions or strategic partnerships, any kind of meaningful business deal, happens uh, when the two parties actually like and trust each other. It's relationship driven, mm-hmm. much more than numbers or contract driven. You know. Um, yes. Uh, Early in my career, I thought contracts made all the difference, the wards were paramount. Then I realized, no, it's actually the numbers. The business case needs to be there regardless of if the incentives are not aligned. uh, It doesn't matter what the contract says, right? The parties are going to fall apart. So then I really, really drilled in on spreadsheets and numbers. And and then I realized, you know, these things don't (laughs) matter because even if you have the the best business model and the business case, Still, if the parties don't like each other, the whole thing will fall apart. Uh, There's a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of faith in the future. In fact, acquisitions especially are the biggest uh, uh, strategic... Transactions for even a large public company doing a small acquisition because they're very distracting. They could have a lot of reputational effect. They take this very seriously. There was a podcast I was listening to with the uh, CEO of Walmart, and he said some of the hardest decisions he had ever made were kind of acquisition decisions, you know? Um, And so that's why the relationships are so important because at the end of the day, you have to, as an acquirer, you have to believe that the team, the founders are going to deliver, you know, they're going to stick around and, and what you saw is actually, you know, uh, the truth, uh, no matter how much diligence they do, um, it doesn't overcome the personal connection. So
0: that's, that's what I really preach in the book. That it's a great point. The way you, you said it in a nuanced way from the buyer's perspective, in order for it to materialize the value that everybody's envisioning. And when we, we sit in the founder's shoes we're saying those relationships really help you hit the earnout portions of the transactions that we're creating, mm-hmm. right? Because these are not all cash deals. You are committing time and you're committing to, to build something very special. And when you can work really well with the people on the other side of the table, then the outcomes become more certain, right? There's all obviously still risk and you want to create those earnouts where you have some levers in your hand but ultimately you're now part of a team and you got to get along really well with that team. We're in a couple of transactions right now where we are purposefully having the founder create deeper relationships before we sign anything. We want to really understand is is this the group that you're going to be happy with with the next 2 or 3 years or should we look somewhere else. So super important from the founders.
1: Absolutely. And and uh... Frankly, you know, it's very rare that one startup is so unique that it doesn't have any competitors. It's the only asset in the market that can satisfy a need for an acquirer. Chances are there are multiple out there. So acquirers have also their own wish list of companies they want to acquire in each sector, industry, etc. And so um, for you to stand up and stand out against all the others. It's where the relationships really
0: matter, too. Ah, Yeah, it's perfect. Somebody had told me, you know, you might be looking at one, two, maybe a handful of potential acquirers where those acquirers have a stack of a thousand potential companies that they could go out and buy, right? And so sitting at the top of that stack, it takes a lot to be able to do that. And relationships are incredibly uh, powerful to, to make you stand out. So I appreciate you saying that. So your career after... GoDaddy, right? You're, you've been an investor, you're advising, right, countless founders as just as it really as a mentor, which I very much appreciate. Uh, and then you write the book exit path, how to win the startup exit game. Okay, so this is the thing I was all excited about. And I, I read business books, but I am not the prolific reader that a lot of uh, my fellow founders are. And so when I do see something that is like, this is a playbook. And I, you know, having done M&A for 23 years, selling my companies and now helping my fellow founders do it, I was able to take a lot out of this book and we look at our business a little bit differently and we are planning far ahead of any exit that we would ever see now in a very different way. So I very much appreciate um, just the instructional nature, uh, the real world examples, and I would encourage people uh, to absolutely read it would you maybe give us the cliff notes version, the highlights? I know we talked about strategic partnerships, which I took away as like that is gold, uh, but there's a lot more there. Maybe I'll leave it to you to, to pick sure. out some gold nuggets.
1: Sure, thank you. And really appreciate those, uh, those words, Todd. Uh, they mean a lot, especially from an experienced practitioner like yourself. Uh, I'm glad that you approve of the messaging, the approach. So um, thank you. Um, You know, I basically wrote the book that I wish I had when I did my first startup. (laughs) And it took me about five years because I do have other jobs and family and and it took me a while. Uh, But it was good that it took a while because I didn't rush through it. I actually took the time to really systematically get in the mindset of both the acquirer and the seller and the leadership team, all the stakeholders. You know, there are multiple people involved when you're selling a startup. There is um, what I call your deal team, right? There is your investor, key investors, your board. There is your key leadership team members. There are potential partners that you have that need to be managed in some way, customers as well. So there's like a holistic approach uh, that I, I kind of bring to this process. And it all starts with understanding why it is important For a founder, for a team, for a leadership team at a startup to think about their exit early and not wait until they are desperate to sell or that they have an inbound offer. Because once you have an inbound offer, you have to kind of react to it because it could be a a massive opportunity that if you don't uh, capitalize on, uh, you may regret forever. So... um, you have to be ready for that. And so the sooner you get started, the better. And kind of, I take the first, um, you know, part of the book talking about why is it so important? Why is it that so many founders don't even uh, spend four hours? The majority of of founders spend less than four hours um, thinking about their exit or doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. Staggering statistic. Actually, 40% have spent no time I'm thinking about their exit, 40%. Now put that in contrast with the fact that for every IPO, there are 30 acquisitions. So an acquisition is the most likely outcome, successful outcome for any startup. The rest go out of business, especially if you're venture-backed, right? You either have to do a, <laughs> an IPO, which happens one out of 30 times, you, you sell, which happens the other times, or you go out of business. So... Um, Now, when you contrast that with the fact that founders, 40% have spent no time on it, we have have a big problem. Um, So I kind of lay out the problem, the root causes, why it is so critical to think about your exit. And it is important for founders to understand that they have tremendous amount of agency to make an exit happen and to get the best terms that they can. Uh, When you're not prepared, you leave a lot on the table and you could actually blow up a deal. Uh, that otherwise would have been game changing. Um, so, kind of talk about that. Then I go into th- these two phases: the long game, which starts years in advance of when you plan to sell. Kind of, I talked about the WebS.com experience and the offsite. That that's a great kickoff point. Have an offsite, really understand what you want to do, where you want to go, build this thing I call the your exit strategy canvas, which is a framework to Uh, to address the critical questions that you need to come away answered in the offsite and I provide a lot of uh, guidance in terms of you know the best practices of how to run the offsite who should be involved how do you run some of these brainstorming sessions uh, drawing in a lot from design thinking and other kind of product management tools and and then And then go ahead and build those relationships, execute on those partnerships, you know, build leverage, uh, which is when you get to the short game, which is the last stage of the process, it's going to make all the difference for you. Um, And kind of talk about where does leverage come from? Uh, It's a quick preview. It's optionality, uh, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that the other party likes you. If they like you, you have a lot more leverage. Um, and so, um, also, what are the deal dynamics? What, what does an m and deal look like? What are the key terms? So I kind of go through all of those as well and and if, and for a lot of founders, perhaps they are thinking about, uh, selling their startup this year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and they would just go straight to the last chapter, <laughs>
0: uh, or last part of the book. One of the things that, um, impressed me is that before this offsite, right? There is a lot of work. To, to make that off-site very efficient for all the stakeholders. And I think a lot of our founders, maybe, you know, you've got five to ten people, and I think you address that, but as well as some larger organizations, right? How do we um, bring people into this process and contribute to kind of that out-of-the-box thinking? And one of the things that I've done, and we've done this with founders, is that because we are what we believe is the largest network of uh, independent, uh, very industry-specific investment bankers in the world, they have such a uh, uh, really detailed insight into very specific categories. And so I went out and I started talking to investment bankers in our network to say, who do you think would be interested in us someday, right? And that was the, the start of that preparation for our company, and we have no plans of of exiting, but because of your book, I started thinking this way. And the insight that I got from these investment bankers was invaluable. There were categories of buyers that I wasn't even thinking of. And I've been doing this for 25 years, right? So we naturally, as founders, will have some blinders on and opening up um, to not only the, the stakeholders within your company for those ideas, but we reached out the investment bankers in our network and they were incredibly valuable and so i would say that that we would offer that to founders right just before you're you know, ready to sell but years before get that kind of insight get that feedback and start thinking about it and create that buy-in of what this company can ultimately look like and in whose hands will it be that
1: that is such a critical point Um, in fact in my in our webs.com sale um we ended up not hiring an investment banker because we had some really great strategy advisors who Mm -hmm. held our hands through the process and who helped us. Now, also the fact that I was in the company full time, uh, sort of could dedicate myself to running the process really helped a lot of startups don't have that and they have a need for an investment bank to help them whether a solo practitioner or a firm to help them run the process it's a lot of work um of work. and takes takes a lot of uh, leadership uh, energy and focus away so um there are definitely times you need investment bankers but i think you always need this kind of deal advisor you may call it deal sherpa uh, someone that has a long-term perspective and can be with you um, uh, and guide you, who has gone through this process many times before and can guide you and bring in the resources uh, that you may need at various stages. You know, I talk about the deal team, you know, there's lawyers, accountants, all sorts of third parties that will be critical and instrumental in making a, a, a great transaction come to fruition.
0: I, I appreciate you saying that because, you know, we think of ourselves as creating the very specific dream team for every company. And in your book, you pulled out very specifically M&A attorneys having very industry-specific knowledge, right? And and we say, yeah, absolutely. We focus a little bit more at the beginning with the investment bankers. And, and just some of the advice that I might give to fellow founders today is that, being able to prepare for this exit and understand who your likely acquirers could be would be a question that I would ask any investment banker that I was interviewing. Who do you think would be interested in our company? And the bankers that come back and say, well, why don't you tell us who you think you know, the acquirers should be? It's great to have that in your pocket, but you really want your advisors, your bankers to know, hey, this is the community. These are maybe three separate groups um, that would be likely here's why and we've sold to these businesses before I loved that you you call it an advisor or a Sherpa that's how we kind of think of ourselves but I have very rarely heard people pull out having industry expertise at the m and attorney level and I love that it's absolutely something we promote we bring um and and rare to hear so thank you for for putting that in the book
1: Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. And I I think another point that you you mentioned worth uh, underlining and reemphasizing is that you can talk to investment bankers and get information from them and build relationships with them, even if you're not planning to sell tomorrow, because that insight they provide uh, can provide you the blueprint for where you want to head in two years and then come back to them to help you with executing that deal. You know, because frankly, unless you are really doing a deal in the in the near term, an investment banker wouldn't want to officially get engaged because right. they're very much transaction oriented. However, they understand the value of building relationships. So, uh, yeah, build relationships with them, kind of compare and contrast different styles. There are, there are all sorts of investment bankers out there. And do reference checks, you know, come to trusted sources like your firm and uh, kind of Understand what's basically the the universe, the kind of bankers that you can talk to. All these data points are going to be critical in planning that path towards an exit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying sell, 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 right? I'm not mm-hmm. preaching that. I'm saying be ready to sell, even yeah. if you don't need to sell. That's the best position to be in
0: yeah absolutely i like your point you can work with an investment banker you can talk with an investment banker and get information you do not have to be ready to sell and they are a pretty good barometer of where the market is today potentially where it's going uh that may be very strategic for you i think of valuation in particular where we get a lot of founders that come to us and we say okay we've looked at at multiple investment bankers that are specific for you your valuation seems to fit within this range but if you were to hold on 18 more months and do these three things that are in your projections, your valuation is going to go through the roof. We really encourage you to, you know, stay the course, build the business, hit this next milestone. Or it's no, no, you're, you're right in the sweet spot to go today. Everybody's going to fight over you, right? Just getting that insight and knowledge is really valuable. And those bankers are on the front lines and, and can share that. So... Um, Look, uh, uh, Toraj, do you have anything else that, that advice that you would give our fellow founders about M&A before we leave here? You know, I
1: would say two key, key takeaways um, that I would love everyone to to take from this conversation. One is th- there's no such thing as preparing too early. <laughs> I Correct. feel that I, no matter what the stage or size of your startup is, thinking about the end and thinking about where you want to head, and how do you create strategic options for yourself are tr- going to be game-changing for you eventually. That's one. And the other one is um, focus on relationships. You, you don't want to be calling up and starting in relationships from scratch with an acquirer when you are in the process of trying to sell your startup. And that's where I think a lot of good bankers would probably advise you to kind of take that initial step and and court these potential acquirers. Um, and, and don't wait uh, until the banker or advisor, or whoever sends out your pitch to, uh, to acquirers, because it's really low likelihood that that would materialize into something uh, meaningful for you. Um, so those would be my, uh, my, uh, my key advice. Of course, there's a lot more of it in this book is it yep. that, uh, yep. the audio version is also out, but, uh, you know, uh, I highly recommend that folks take a look at it.
0: That's fantastic. Tarish, thank you so much for all the time, right? You're one of the rare people that, as we said at the beginning has seen M and a from all sides of the table. And I think you've distilled a lot of what founders need to know. Um, in the book, Exit Path. So thank you again for for sharing everything today.
1: Yeah, thank you for the great questions. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch.
0: That's great. Thanks, Taurash. See you. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, exitwise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.